So it's not that that the that this kind of way of looking at the world is automatically wrong, but that it's the one-sidedness that tends to skew things. Welcome back to Mind Matters. I'm Harrison Cayley, joined by Elon Martin, Adam Daniels, and joining us again, Lucien Koch. We are going to, well, to, to get into today's show, as a segue from last week's show, I'm going to read two paragraphs from McGilchrist's book, The Matter With Things. And then we'll get into something that McGilchrist calls the schizo-autistic philosophical style. And that is related, we will argue, I think, to what Andrew Lobachevsky calls the schizoidal worldview in political ponderology. So we'll be making some connections between the two and digging into that. So without further ado, McGilchrist writes, Though I confess a, a lifelong addiction to it, that is to the kind of rational thinking, left brain thinking of the... Of philosophy, like hard thinking. There is a sense in which philosophy, uh, in general, is in itself an unhealthy activity. The disease, perhaps, as Karl Kraus said of psychoanalysis, for which it purports to be the cure. Jung wrote, for all its critical analysis, philosophy has not yet managed to root out its psychopaths. Philosophy still has to learn that it is made by human beings and depends to an alarming degree on their psychic constitution. In the critical philosophy of the future, there will be a chapter on the psychopathology of philosophy. I'll skip a bit more of that quote than McGilchrist writes. Indeed. And the point here is not just that philosophy is reflective of any old psychopathology that just happens on an individual basis to be present, but that a certain kind of unusual mind is preferentially and systematically attracted to philosophy of the analytic kind. This is a mind somewhere down the schizo-autistic spectrum, as many examples of now famous philosophers in the analytic tradition attest. For a, for a philosopher such as Collingwood, imagination and empathy the appreciation of context, both personal and historical, as well as the ability to feel your way into another's mind, all skills that are highly right hemisphere dependent, play a crucial role in understanding. Quote, unlike philosophers in the Ryle mold, end quote. Now, the footnote for that is to Monk 2019, which is the, I believe, the article that we quoted last week on the On Collingwood uh, Collingwood's early death and his um, how philosophy would have been different if he had been uh, if he had you know lived and hadn't been replaced by Gilbert Ryle. So in this in this footnote, McGilchrist writes, he points to the narrowness Monk, Monk does. Uh, he points to the narrowness, pugnacity, and cut and dried style of what I call the triple A Anglo-American analytic tradition, headed up by Gilbert Ryle its repudiation of context and neglect of the broader humanities, and wonders what would have happened if the broadly based, humane style of Collingwood, Ryle's predecessor, in the Waynefleet chair at Oxford, had been allowed to flourish. And then he's got a quote from Monk. So I just wanted uh, to make that connection from Collingwood to our present subject. Uh, we kind of hinted on it, hinted at it last week, I think. But 
that's what I want to get into is this philosophers in the royal mold. Um, McLucas continues, philosophers in the royal mold are more likely to take things out of context, think in disembodied schemata, and adopt irrationally rationalistic approaches. They tend toward utilitarianism in ethics, an approach that is also characteristic of people with frontal lobe damage, especially in the right hemisphere, the clinical picture of which resembles some types of autism. Which is not to say, of course, that all utilitarian philosophers are autistic, or that psycho psychopathology makes the perceptions of its sufferers invalid. It may actually make some things easier to see, while hiding or distorting others. But it does invite the question why sh we should attach particular importance to a way of looking the world at the world which is typical of a spectrum of conditions which normally lead to their holders receiving treatment for a distressing illness. So before I comment on that, I want to read now some excerpts from Political Ponderology. <clears throat> As a bit of a summary, um, he calls it the, the schizo, uh, McGilchrist calls it the schizo-autistic philosophical style um, or outlook. And he's referencing the kind of constellation of, of traits that are common to um, schizophrenics, schizoid personality disorder, schizo, schizoaffective disorders in general. And Lobachevsky talks about the, specifically about schizoid personality disorder, or as he calls it, schizoid psychopathy. And so on that, he writes, these are just a few excerpts. The common features of the varieties of this anomaly, or the common feature, is a dull pallor of emotion and weakness of the feeling for psychological realities and situations, the essential con component of basic or emotional intelligence. Low emotional pressure enables them to develop efficient speculative reasoning, a kind of objectivity which is useful in non-humanistic spheres of activity, like economics, or for exploiting the emotionalism of others. However, their one-sidedness makes them prone to consider themselves intellectually superior to ordinary people who, in their opinion, are mainly guided by their emotions. Carriers of this anomaly are hypersensitive and distrustful, but pay little attention to the feelings of others. They tend to assume extreme moralizing positions and are eager to retaliate for minor offenses. Sometimes they are eccentric and odd. Their poor sense of psychological situations and reality leads them to superimpose erroneous, pejorative interpretations upon others' intentions. They easily become involved in activities which are ostensibly moral, but which actually inflict damage upon themselves and others. Their impoverished psychological worldview makes them typically pessimistic regarding human nature. We frequently find expressions of their characteristic attitudes in their statements and writings. Quote, Human nature is so bad that order in human society can only be maintained by a strong power created by exceptionally rational minds in the name of some higher idea. Let us call this typical expression the schizoidal declaration. A couple other quotes. Human nature does in fact tend to be no good, especially when the schizoids embitter other people's lives as a result of their shortcomings, that is, or when schizoidal women are abandoned to loneliness. One more. During stable times which are ostensibly happy, albeit marked by injustice to individuals and nations, 
doctrinaire people believe they have found a simple solution to fix such a world. Such a historical period is always characterized by an impoverished psychological worldview, so that a schizoidal worldview does not stand out as odd, and is accepted as legal tender. These doctrinaire individuals characteristically manifest a certain contempt with regard to moralists when preaching the need to rediscover lost human values and moral discipline, and to develop a richer, more appropriate psychological worldview. So those those are just a few quotes from Ponderology. Right away, I'll just make a few little comments on them. First, the you can see a lot of while he's not talking about he's not speaking specifically in reference to philosophy. You can you can see a lot of philosophy in there. So the tendency to as, uh, assume extreme positions, the kind of um, blocking off or bracketing off of of um, of morality and of um, the kind of more humanistic elements in in philosophy and McGilchrist and Monk talk about that in relation to, to the contrast between uh, Collingwood and Ryle, and then there's a little a little hint in there to perhaps uh, what might be a fruitful study of feminism um, in that comment about schizoidal women. Um, maybe we can get into that at some point. And so there's that disdain for the, the disdain for moralists, the the exceptional kind of speculative reasoning, and at other points, um, at some other point in the book, I don't have the quote with me. Lobachevsky does point out that, you know, oftentimes when for the people that come up with like grand ideologies, and a lot of ideologies are created by, um, like Lobachevsky would argue, by schizoids. It's not that they're necessarily wrong. Um, there will be they will have good observations they 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 will either be addressing real issues or make some good observations and McGilchrist makes the the same point so it's not that that the that this kind of way of looking at the world is automatically wrong but that it's the one-sidedness that tends to skew things so the one-sidedness that um, it's it's this black and white mentality that it's either this or that and that will or that will and does lead to some pretty extreme consequences, as we see, you know, for example, with Marxism, where us, uh, in that case, a political philosophy has baked into it a certain uh, certain features, certain core presuppositions that, by virtue of those core presuppositions, make it play out in such a way. So this is why, um, for example, communism never works. It's because it's the the philosophy is flawed from the very beginning, and like deeply flawed. Lobachevsky argues is that the the core the core reason for that isn't necessarily anything economic or um, like philosophical in that sense. It's that it is at at its root psychologically deficient. Like it, it has a a misunderstanding of human nature, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's necessarily completely wrong about human nature, but it's limited in what it, in whatever statements it might make about human nature, which in essence kind of does make it wrong because it ignores so much else. But when we look at that, that view of humanity, um, uh, for, 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 for Lobachevsky, it's the, it's kind of a focus on the negative of humanity. There's this distrust for human nature and this kind of um, cynical, um, like just negative view. So it's like you, the, the the tendency would be to see, 
to see all the all the flaws of humanity, but none of the actual good things or none of, none of the positive bits. And that will that can influence um, how a political philosophy plays itself out. So, for instance, the the schizoidal declaration that I just read: human nature is so bad that well, human nature can be bad. You know that no one really denies that, and Lobachevsky wouldn't either. I mean, the whole the whole pretty much the whole point of ponderology is all of the flaws within humanity and the flaws inherent in these certain types of pathology that that create evil but it's the balance that needs to be struck so I, those are just uh, some opening points that i wanted to make about that um i'll get into some more of what some more of what mcgilchrist says which has some some examples um one that i'd known before but i hadn't made the connection um but i'll save that for a few minutes unless do you guys have anything to Anything to respond to those opening quotations? Well, I think we benefit a little bit by flushing out the term impoverished psychological worldview as opposed to a richer psychological worldview. Because part of, I think, what an impoverished psychological worldview does is it it not only negates, but it, it completely invalidates another perspective on the greater psychological reality of society. And in order to do that, it instills an emotional kind of fervor, uh, a demonization, an attack, which um, kind of impels the, the person who is being uh, influenced by, by a particular uh, culturally Marxist ideology to uh, to deny any kind of uh, value to what that other uh, worldview that might be healthier and more constructive in some sense, but also just kind of exists as a matter of course as part of a spectrum of worldviews, and it 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 makes for uh, not only just a, a kind of limited uh, interaction with the world, but it almost seeks to, on some level, destroy anything that isn't it. Um, there was a, a line that, that speaks to this. I think you read it, Harrison. I had it uh, notated uh, for myself here. These doctrinaire individuals characteristically manifest a certain contempt with regard to moralists, then preaching the need to rediscover lost human values and to develop a richer, more appropriate psychological worldview. And when I read that, I, I thought about people like Jordan Peterson in particular, but also others who are attempting to be heard and understood um, and who do have a... Uh, a psychologically healthier worldview that acknowledges both ends of the of a you know the political spectrum of the value spectrum, and who are also trying to draw upon traditional uh, values and morals that have been the basis for stable societies for millennia, uh, as far as they can tell, and and are attempting to reintroduce. Uh, these ideas in a way that is um, accessible, constructive, um, and and makes sense and gives meaning uh, to 
uh, a segment of society that has found that that they that they have they're missing something that they that they're thirsting and hungry for some bit of knowledge that's been um, progressively, no pun intended, uh, withdrawn from their from their perception, from their thinking, from their emotional life, from their psychology. So uh, it you know we are seeing this play out in real time. Voices like Peterson um, are attacked vehemently, uh, and there are many others who are simply not allowed to offer an alternative perspective uh, to, to the culturally Marxist uh, points of view that we're seeing in society today without being hounded and canceled and, um, and, and vilified. And it, it's happened so many times now uh, that, you know, it just makes Lobachevsky's material I think its explanatory power is incredible. Uh, it, it is, you know, this is a, this is someone who's obviously thought very deeply uh, based on his own experiences in Poland about, you know, what he saw. And he drilled down into these ideas so much that, that we can read this text and we can nod our heads in recognition of the fact that it, it applies uh, so accurately to the types of developments we're seeing right now. Um, so that those are my kind of two points to that. Well, with, uh, with Peterson, you know, one thing that he discusses is, uh, you know, not to let things stay hidden. You know, you have to talk about things. It's, it's the stuff that you don't talk about that becomes an issue, that becomes a problem. It's when you don't talk about things that uh you know then turn into the dragon right uh that destroys your life because you're not talking about it and so that's if you take that as as a way forward as a way to live in the world which is to talk about things even the things that you find uncomfortable or distasteful you have to to air these things out lest they grow in the darkness and become a dragon. Uh, that is a much healthier way of, of going about living your life personally and also politically. It's when you, the reason why you have revolutionaries is because there's some group of people who have some issue which is not being addressed at, at large. And so then when they feel they have no outlet, no means by which they can voice their concern, their opinion, their, their struggle. When they're pushed into the fringe, into the closet, where they can fester and grow and become, you know, violently revolutionary because they seem, they think they have no other means of recourse. Well, then, you know, that's what creates a bunch of problems. And so take that and contrast it with, you know, this schizotypal uh, autistic type personality who says anything who is, or anyone who sees things differently to me is wrong. Full stop. Anyone who sees things differently than me, uh, basically has, yeah, is my enemy or, you know, is of little value because they see things using their emotions. And I see things, you know, using, 
purely my intellect or, you know, whatever it is, um, that is just antithetical to, you know, having something that's a more healthy dynamic. And so it, <laughs> in a sense, like it creates its own problems. You know, they say that this, this simple solution will, will free us and, uh, create utopia, but really they're just creating the very thing, the situations that are going to cause even more problems by virtue of the fact that they don't realize that, that, that it's not so black and white. It's not everyone who sees things differently is wrong. It's everyone who sees things differently has a different perspective and that needs to be taken into account. It needs to be taken into consideration. And when you don't do that, that's what leads to problems. So it's just, uh, yeah, that's kind of like my two cents on that in terms of Jordan Peterson and a, and a richer worldview versus a, uh, more black and white, rigid and narrow, uh, worldview and the, and the issues that can, you know, come out of that. One of the main points <clears throat> that stands out for me is that, well, it can be, I guess for like for, for new listeners that haven't, that aren't kind of immersed into this material already, it might not, it might not seem obvious or not seem as obvious as it might seem to us, like what we're talking about, because, and I think the reason for that is just how prevalent, um, these worldviews are, um, that they, that they influence the way probably most people on the planet think because the, these ideas have been so influ influential over the past hundred, 200 years, um, in various forms or more, um, well, definitely more for what we'll, we'll see what some of the examples that I'll bring up, but you can see this kind of act, this kind of attitude, um, well, it's, it's kind of, it's ubiquitous. This it's the, you can see numerous examples of finding this problem and then looking for the solution and saying, oh, here's the solution. So you can, f and you can find ideologies that are kind of either linked with that idea, with that, uh, that problem, that solution, or which accommodate them. So you can have like climate change, for instance, oh, we just have to focus on climate change or, um, racism, racism, racism is the biggest problem. We just have to focus on racism. You find all of these kind of issues this one issue that then becomes this kind of like monolithic um, issue that then needs to be addressed as opposed to one um, like one spoke of a many, many spoked wheel that, that it interacts with numerous other problems um, when you just isolate them and then come up with an ideology or a, a policy that tackles that problem. It's never going to work because that's not the way issues work. Issues are never just this one singular thing that you can that you can approach and solve. They're always in, going to be interconnected with numerous other things, and you can see this in like the, you know, like a, a Klaus Schwab or um, a lot of the historically. If you look back at the um, how do you like the, the capitalist socialists, like uh, Michael Rechtenwald likes to bring up the example of uh, what's his name Gillette. Like, so there's this Gillette guy, uh, uh, an innovator, a guy who came up with a good adventure. I, I can't remember if it was actually him or maybe his son, but I'll just pretend it was him. C came up with the, like the Gillette razor, right? And, uh, you know, we, we have them today, but he was a, this utopian that thought that, oh, the, the solution to all our problems is just to create one giant monopoly. 
And if we just have one giant monopoly, then that, that, that corporation can create or produce everything for everyone and it'll be a utopia. And so this like simplistic idea just gets locked into, into his mind and then he goes with it. And he was like a, a devotee of his own religion for, for however many years, um, like a, uh, an evangelist for his, for his corporatist monopolist socialist utopia. And of course, unaware that the idea was bunk and just wouldn't work for numerous reasons, um, but fervent in, in his belief that it would work. And that's, I think that's, that's one of the allures of um, like a political ideology created with this kind of mindset is that, oh, well, we've, yes, the, the problem exists um, because people will have personal experience, experiences that will um, predispose them to, to value that issue and value finding a solution to it. And when you find uh, a confident person who, who says, here's the problem, yes, I agree with you, and here's the solution, look how easy it is. It's like, oh, thank God, I can have hope because the problem can be solved. And then you get a whole bunch of converts that will, that will support a, a wider social cause and a, and a bigger social movement that kind of can go nowhere but it ends up going somewhere, um, mm -hmm. just not generally the direction that that people would like. That's why um, it's 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 a sad a sad fact of history, and will be continue to be into the future. Where you look at the, all of the old communists, all the all the people in Eastern Europe and Russia who were gung ho, like uh, you know, working or if not working class, then supporters of the worker working class, right? Uh, um, who who were fervent communists, who are the ones who ended up, you know, getting purged, sent to the gulag, executed, um, not getting anything they wanted. And then those are the guys that said, oh, well, this is uh, like, this isn't real communism. Because they, I mean, they had a point. It wasn't what they wanted, um, obviously. And the same thing happens repeatedly and will happen again. So the, like my kind of future speculative scenario, you have um, like the, the, the woke social justice types, uh, maybe like put in CRT, like critical race theory in there, where in the future, if they get what they want, they'll be the ones saying, you know, this isn't real social justice. This isn't real anti-racism, but there's not going to be anything they can do about it because I mean, they were used and abused and thrown aside when they were no longer useful. It's because that's the only thing they end up actually being useful for is putting someone else in power who just wants to use their ideology for that means. Um, now, that, that, that's a, a specific example because it, it is wider than that. It's not just, um, like, or at least in this episode, I don't want to just focus on political ideologies that, uh, that you know, go wrong and, and the, the reason for them or who creates them or whatever, because it is a much wider thing. It's not just, it's not just political ideologies. It's the entire, like, the entire Western worldview to a certain degree that is... Um, infected or um, what's a better word tainted or just affected warped. by warped. Yeah, exactly. And, and this goes back and, and there's, a, and I think the reason is because like, like McGilchrist points out is that there's a certain type of, of person that tends to get into um, philosophy of this sort, right. Or to, to the, the, the great thinkers who then write great books, who then, um, who then are read by, multitudes of people who don't really share the same mentality, obviously, because they're not philosophers. It's not, it's not just philosophers that read other philosophers either, but I, 
probably today that's more true than not. But those ideas then filter down. And so that's why that's why even though probably very few people in the in the English speaking world have read any books that form the foundation of a like scientific mat materialist worldview. Um, did I say everything I want to say that even though none of them have probably read any of those foundational books, they still have that mentality. Well, how did that happen? Well, it has to, you know, that's the way ideas work. They, they spread, they filter around, they, they become the dominant like zeitgeist or, or worldview of, of, of a culture of an epoch. And, and people think in those terms, like we were talking about last week, it kind of like forms the, the absolute presuppositions of that, of that epoch, of that, of that time and that place where people tend to think in those terms. And where do those terms come from? Well, I'll read um, just a short little thing here on this philosophical style. So McGilchrist writes, here I might make an aside on the philosophical personality. If I am right, as I argued in chapter nine, um, that, uh, that schizoautistic features suggest a tendency to left hemisphere modes of apprehension of the world and depressive features suggest the opposite. One would expect highly analytic philosophers to have character features suggesting they are on the schizoautistic spectrum. Descartes had many hallmarks of the schizoid personality. Spinoza and Kant were probably on the autistic spectrum and so clearly was Bentham. In modern times, there is the case, there is a case that Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell, A.J. Iyer, and Derek Parfit also were, to name a few. Similarly, we might expect philosophers who opposed, uh, who were opposed to the analytic tradition, to be more prone to depression. It is arguable that Pascal, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Emerson, C.S. Pierce, um, William James, and John Dewey were. Then he talks about uh, Wittgenstein as an intriguing case because he he showed. Um, both analytic trends and depressive trends in his, in his personality. Um, and he, uh, but the one thing I wanted to, this last on this point, I wanted to say something about Descartes. This was the, who I was referring to earlier as something I'd been aware of beforehand, but hadn't made the connection. Um, later on, he writes, Descartes displays an essential schizoid personality. <clears throat> he was an example of both extreme left hemisphere credulity. And then in brackets, he writes, animals are merely machines and feel no pain despite their cries when dissected and left hemisphere skepticism. I have no continuity of existence. Other people may be simply automata. Now, so this is, this is something that I'd read years ago about Descartes and being a vivisectionist. Like, so he'd, he'd, dissect animals while alive, but he kind of justified it to himself by the, the belief that they were just machines. So when they would cry and scream, that was just, it was, there was no actual feeling or emotion behind it. That was just, um, just the programmed response of a robot, essentially a machine. And you see, you've, there, there was, was a similar trend among doctors, for instance, that believed that babies couldn't feel any pain. So they would do like surgery on babies, newborns, um, without any anesthetic or anything, just because they believed that babies couldn't feel pain, despite the cries and the screams. And, um, and then that, that left hemisphere skepticism, like, um, there is a, this tendency in, in a lot of philosophers to, to take seriously, um, to take seriously ideas that, that just seem like cracked or like off the rails. 
And a recent example is this guy, um, he was in the news, uh, what's his name? This philosopher, um, can't remember his name, but he, he, there was a recent controversy because a bunch of his published papers and public statements like on podcasts came up where he's giving a defense of like pedophilia, um, where he says, it's not obvious to me why sex with a child is wrong. And then people came out to defend him saying, oh, this is just what philosophers do. You know, they, they play devil's advocate and they, they take an opposite position. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, to a, to a degree, but at, at, at what point is someone just like screwed up in the head to where the, you know, you can see that just that irrational rationalism. Well, okay, well, as a professional philosopher, let me look at this idea. Well, after thinking through it, um, you know, very rationally, I, 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 I come to the conclusion that I can't see any good reason why having sex with a newborn is a bad thing. And it's like, and pe- so there are yeah. actual philosophers like that, that, uh, and then the people that defend them saying, oh, well, that's just what philosophers do. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, then they're just as, uh, they're just as screwed in the head as the person who put it forward. If they are not recognizing or they don't have within them uh, that, that ability to, create a line and be like, that's, uh, that's going a little far there. Or, or they just maybe not, some of them probably are as bad. Some of them I think aren't as, as aren't as bad, but they, but they disregard their own intuitions. Cause I think a lot of like, yeah. I've got some specific people in mind, like they probably do that do read that and disagree, but then they say, oh, well, then, then a different part of their brain takes over and says, oh, well, the reason for that is, even though their initial reaction might have been, wait a second, oh, oh, but I don't have a good reason for for that intuition, for that instinctive response. I need to be rational about it. And when I'm rational about it, I too can't find a, a good reason for disagreeing with this guy, even though I'm against pedophilia. Is there what something you-, you wanted to say, Luke? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, wanted to... Um, uh, yeah, talk about a bit about this kind of thinking in philosophers and, and how it looks like. So for me, it's kind of like a thing that uh, you kind of think things through completely in the abstract, right? Completely in mm-hmm. the logical realm. And it's kind of interesting because Collingwood actually in his book, um, Essay on Philosophical Method, he says that a good um, argument in philosophy always needs to be like um uh grounded in actual experience in every step of the way so from your premise you know to each intermediary step to your conclusion you must must always uh bring actual experience into it so that's basically the the antidote to these kinds of like completely off the rails um arguments and it seems to me what the left hemisphere kind of thinking uh, does in philosophy is that um, people start with with some premise and then they just think it through logically and if like the most grotesque and absurd conclusion you know comes from that process they just accept it you know i mean um for example uh, this whole materialist thing about like starting with the premise um everything is matter, you know, life kind of evolved accidentally and all of that. And they think it through and then they come to the conclusion, oh, so there is no consciousness. 
It's just not, it's not there. You know, the logic, it shows it, you know, and, and there's no free will and all of that. And it's like, what? You know, and, and I think the characteristic thing is this kind of um, uh, strange um, thinking that is, takes place completely in the abstract and um, disregards or discards any like intuition and even just, you know, stopping for a moment and thinking about, I mean, what what do I actually experience in this world, right? And um, and another good example because um, you mentioned uh, Harrison uh, Bertrand Russell, so he at one point in his uh, career and some others with him, they tried to uh, form the ideal language or come up with an ideal mm. language because they they believed you know language is just not logical enough it's just not good enough and um so that died pretty soon this idea but you know they came up with it and it's also very interesting um to maybe kind of understand a bit better how this weird left hemisphere thinking works uh, is that uh, collingwood again is as kind of the antidote to that, he said um, that actually what we should do is uh, take the um, the ambiguity of language very seriously and use it actually, you know, to to for for profit to to really gain a deeper understanding, uh, to suss out like the subtleties of experience and all that. We need this kind of you know synonyms that are. That have slightly different meanings and and all of that. Um, so precisely that which the, those guys around Russell wanted to get rid of. Right? So it's it's kind of interesting to um, to look for signs uh, in 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 this kind of thinking and maybe to find counterexamples. And uh, we are lucky that we have uh, philosophers like Collingwood and and others who kind of understood it and 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 offered a, a completely different program. But I think that's kind of like our only defense uh, against this kind of thinking is to really understand what's going on and uh, and uh, not accept it, basically. And uh, But I also wanted to say it can be dangerous, of course, too, and, and McGilchrist warns about that, too, I think, um, or from the quote that you read, uh, to just, you know, label um, thinkers basically like mentally ill, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's that's... I shouldn't like um we should be careful i think uh to uh not use that you know as a kind of like um argument to not take anything seriously that we don't agree with or that we don't like you know so mm -hmm. i mean there's always a, a danger but then again we should also not be bullied you know into believing like absurd things and if our gut feeling kind of tells us i mean that can't be right <laughs> so um we shouldn't let us uh, or have us bullied, you know, in, into accepting it just because it comes with like all kinds of uh, formal logic and complicated arguments. And uh, mm -hmm. that's all often how it works. Right. So, yeah. 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 And um, on that point, I want to, I want to bring up a couple more examples these ones from uh, well on sexuality, but before I do on, on that point, I think that this, that bringing in the, the kind of, oh, that's a crazy person or that person's mentally ill. It's like that on the one hand that, like you said, that shouldn't be used as just a, a dismissive thing or just an ad hominem. Um, because like, like McGill Chris says, they, that might even be 
that might even allow them to see certain things more clearly um, that that you wouldn't be able to see with extra baggage. So that's a point in, per, perhaps in, in their favor in, in, in certain regards. But also it can be used as, or I think everything should just be approached, um, well, it might sound cliche, but just approached scientifically. So every every statement that someone makes or every argument that make, they make should be looked at from kind of as many angles as possible. So you can say, you take one thing that some individual says and, oh, say, okay, that looks true. You know, all of, all of the evidence that I have, all of the experience I have suggests that that's true. And there's good arguments for it and et cetera, et cetera. Like on all levels, looking at it from all angles, that seems to be a true thing. But then when you come across something, something else, maybe it looks, maybe, maybe you intuitively do think it's true, but then the evidence shows that it's not, or maybe you have that gut reaction that says, oh, this can't be true, but it's, that's a good argument. Um, but when you, when you tease apart different things, then maybe that's where the psychology can, can come in as a corrective and say, oh, well, that actually makes sense. Um, that he would say that for this reason. Now that will get that will lead into these examples that I'll give. Um, specifically, I'll give a, a preview on Kant, Spinoza, Freud, uh, Kant, Spinoza, and Freud. So Nietzsche amusingly comments, alluding to his idea of philosophy as an involuntary autobiography, that in the case of Kant, it was not even quote an involuntary biography of a soul, but the, biog the biography of a head, <laughs> end quote. Roger Scruton points out that the great modern philosophers has, have tended to, quote, avoid the experience of desire as scrupulously as they have tended to avoid its analysis, end quote. He quotes Kant's description of marriage as an agreement between two people as to the reciprocal use of each other's sexual organs. He might also have quoted Spinoza on love, quote, titillation accompanied by the, ex by the idea of an external cause. <laughs> Ooh, you know, a real, uh, just real, real romantic, real romantic. Yeah. Real romantic. <laughs> yeah. Um, then he, but he continues, but Freud's attitude to sexual desire is almost as expressive of a sort of fastidious alienation. Its aim, according to him, being the quote, union of the genitals in the act of in the act known as copulation, which leads to a release of the sexual tension and a temporary extinction of the sexual instinct, a satisfaction analogous to the sating of hunger, end quote. He described the task of psychoanalysis as drawing up the messy emotions of the patient, quote, where id was, there shall ego be, he declared somewhat portentously. It is, it is reclamation work, like the draining of the Zyder Z. I don't know what the Zyder Z is. Do you know, Luke? No? Okay. Maybe it's no. like some, some dam or something. Um, I didn't get that reference. But he, he continues, perhaps Freud's biographer. Ah, yeah, yeah, Z. What is it? Uh, C, uh, lake, I guess, right? Oh, oh, the Zyder C. Okay. But perhaps uh, Freud's biographer, Ernest Jones, could be referring to his own mentor, among others, when he suggested that philosophers are people who have been impelled to deal with various personal problems in their unconscious by making serious efforts to think consciously. They have intellectualized the emotional conflicts. The recommendation in Freud's technical papers for analysts to be emotionless, according to Ferenczi and Rank, has led to, quote, an unnatural elimination of all human factors and to a theorizing of experience. 
So th- those actually reminded me some f- of some quotes. I, th- I, th- I can't remember if, it, if they were from The Mask of Sanity by Cleckley or his other book, A Caricature of Love, where he was talking about, I think he had some examples from famous writers, but he also had an example from a patient, um, or it wasn't even a patient. It, I think it was like a, a, a fellow professional colleague of his who had, who, uh, when discuss when to, oh, what was it? There were a few examples, but, but their description of, of sexuality, uh, of sex and relationships and, um, and just humanity. And like, one of them was that, uh, to, to picture the, I think it was like advice that he gave a child or something to just picture, um, like the, whenever you see a, a, another person or a woman, for instance, just realize that they're actually just, uh, like a digestive tube surrounded by, um, by skin and flesh or something. It's like, like that kind of just, it, it just deranged view of humanity that reduces and McGilchrist w- probably would have liked that quote for, for this book, because th- this, there's this, this tendency to just to reduce things to their parts. It's like a human, isn't a, a human, a person. It's just a collection of parts. It's just a, a bunch of, of tubes and organs and, and viscera that just happen to be shaped in a certain way. And like these descriptions of, of marriage, you know, oh, it's a, it's, it's a means of connecting the genitals to, to, uh, achieve a, a release of sexual tension. It's like, um, there's something missing from that picture. And that's what you were talking about, Ilan, about that, that psychological worldview, right? The, an impoverished psychological worldview. There's something missing from that picture, something pretty obvious to most people. Like, I think, I think most people would read that and be like, uh, all right, dude, um, <laughs> don't know, uh, don't know what you ate for breakfast or don't know what, what planet you're from. But, um, but these are the people that like, these are the intellectual giants that have, that have shaped so much of, of the, the modern worldview. Now he does, he does also have an example, uh, a quote from Darwin and, um, but, uh, I think McGilchrist actually has a, a soft spot for Darwin because Darwin wasn't actually like this, but this is a telling quote. I'll just read part of it. This is a, I think, a, a, this is a passage from his autobiography. <clears throat> so written near the, getting to the end of his life, and he's basically reflecting upon like uh, his years of, of thinking and scientific activity. And he starts out by saying that he, as a kid, he used to love poetry and um, like he'd, he'd read Milton, Gray, Byron, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Shelley, Shakespeare. But that, but that after years of scientific work, he, he can't, he can no longer read poetry. And so he writes, um, like he, fa- he finds it dull and, and nauseating. So he writes, my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding laws out of a large collection of facts. And if I had to live my life again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week. For perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would thus have been kept active through use. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. So Darwin actually had the, the self-reflectiveness, the self-awareness to see that in in himself and see that it was a problem. Mm -hmm. Not everyone that not everyone gets to that point. Um, So uh, that's a a positive point for, for Darwin in my books um, that he, that he could at at least, at least see it and be somewhat disturbed by it. 
um, because that is, and if if it can happen to to someone like someone like Darwin, it can happen to to any number of people. That the there can actually be a change in the like a, like a loss of a loss of function in the in certain like human aspects mm -hmm. that you, that you can become a little bit more machine-like in life, given certain influences and given certain practices. But, um, on the other hand, perhaps hopefully there's also the, the possibility for the opposite to, to regain some of that function. And, uh, I don't even like, it's, it's such a clinical word, regain that function to become a bit, a bit more human again. Mm -hmm. Um, well, th th this was, uh, covered pretty well um, on a previous show regarding some of uh, Matthew Eretz's writings, where he described the lives of Albert Einstein and Max Planck, and the fact that uh, these, you know, scientific geniuses were also musicians, mm. and uh, pointed to their kind of, their conscience and their, um, their their ability to even look at world developments and comment on them with some degree of insight mm -hmm. uh precisely because they were not only scientists but but human beings who who were engaged in this other side of their their minds so you know this is um this flies in the face of uh of scientism and this kind of uh dogmatic hyper rational approach to um, looking at information and and you know mapping out one's own personal worldview or ideology or approach to life uh, that um, that is deficient or uh, or lacking in an appreciation for those things that that make us human as you as you termed it before Harrison uh, so. Um, you know, I I agree with you guys. It it isn't a, a constructive approach to look at the writing of a particular philosopher or, or great thinker and and automatically dismiss them for. But it can be fun for their for their dryness and and their you know uh, their 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 dogma. Um, at the same time, you know, you can see how there is this this spectrum of 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 thinking, of interacting with the world, of uh, engaging with life and ideas that runs the gambit. So I think the more that we can uh, see how this, how this um, makes itself known in, in the words of a particular person, uh, especially somebody in, in the public sphere who has a position of influence, uh, you know, the, the better we're able to better position we are to assess, you know, where they're coming from and what we think, you know, about the validity of their statements. And on that note, um, I was reminded of, of some press conferences uh, with the White House recently because uh, we have um, uh, we have an, an incredible amount of, of um, prevarication and lies and and bullshit being uh um disseminated from the white house from spokesperson from the department of justice from the pentagon from you know biden's uh um you know representatives and uh, i recently saw a montage of um of interviews of question answer periods that uh 
like head journalist, head press corps leader, Matt Lee, was having with some of these uh, individuals. And this came to the fore because Matt Lee was actually calling out, you know, this assertion that Russia was prepared to commit a false flag in Ukraine to, to justify its invasion, which is part of all the rage and propaganda. In any case, there was one video I'd never seen of Matt Lee speaking to a, uh, one of these representatives, someone I was not so familiar with. And, um, and he was questioning her about some assertions she was making about Ukraine and the situation there. And I have to tell you, she was really good. Her intonations, the way she twisted the facts of what was actually going on there, uh, the way she characterized NATO as this democracy-defending institution. And, and I thought, you know, if I didn't know any better, if I hadn't been um, on the ball about, about the other side, the other perspective, I would say I might have been convinced by her. Mm -hmm. She was great in in a in a kind of you know pathological spellbinding sort of a way. And she spoke totally confidently. She wasn't over the top. She made these tiny little insinuations that that Matt Lee, the uh, the questioning investigator, was you know a little a little too influenced by Russian propaganda. Matt and I and I thought, oh, is she good? Uh, very presentable, and um, and so uh, and coherent, and and I thought, how many other people in positions of influence, how many other individuals who are thinkers or heads of organizations, have this this gift of oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of of rhetoric, of of manipulation on such a high level, uh, and yet she's an effing liar yeah you know <clears throat> so we're in a lot of trouble yeah. yes <laughs> that that gets back to our our show on the the managerial managerial revolution um because that is the uh, it's the standard operating procedure it's the modus operandi of well the managerial class but uh that actually leads me to this book i want to talk about this book um Maybe a bit today, but get to it into the future too. The Machiavellians, Defenders of Freedom by James Burnham. Um, I was inspired to read this by um, by Michael McConkey, whose book on the managerial uh, class we discussed on a previous episode, because he wrote something recently. Um, well, first of all, I want to do a little test. So uh, I want to ask all of you your thoughts on Machiavelli. Even if you don't know anything about him, what what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Machiavelli? We'll start with Luke. Prince. The prince, yes. Yes, okay. Anything anything no, else but, or uh, just the prince? Yeah, no. It, uh, no, I mean the what comes to mind um uh what is kind of like ingrained is like evil tyranny and how to exploit people uh-huh okay any dissenting views or agreement from the other members of our panel yeah i mean we the dark triad yeah. includes you know the idea yeah. of this manipulation machiavellianism uh-huh 
Um, that's my, well, that's always been my initial reaction uh-huh. until McConkie's, mm-hmm. uh, until reading McConkie's Substack, yep. where you kind of, where he introduces the Italian realist school. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe, yeah, maybe second. it's not pure evil. Yeah. Like maybe there's some points to it that are actually like, you kind of have to do some of this stuff just by very by virtue of the fact of what you're trying to do. Well, also, okay. Good, good stuff. Um, I want to just read a couple things from this book. Uh, well, first of all, Burnham, I believe I haven't read too much about him, but from, from what I think I remember about him, he like, at one point he was a Trotskyist. Um, so he was like a, he was a commie and then he got disillusioned with, with all that. And then he got disillusioned with all ideologies um, and then he, so he wrote the the book in like 1941, I think, um, the managerial revolution, which is kind of the, one of the foundations for, uh, for that, for that thing. <laughs> and, uh, so on the first page of this book, the, uh, the epitaph or, or what do you call that thing at the beginning of the book quotation? It's a, it's a quote from Machiavelli. Um, this was a letter to, um, Buon del Mon- uh, what's his name? Z, Z- Zenobi Buon Del Monte, um, one of his kind of uh, noble friends. And this was from a letter to him. I verified the quote. Um, you can find it on, on uh, Google Books. So I come now to the last branch of my charge, that I, teach prince, that I teach princes villainy and how to enslave. If any man will read over my book with impartiality and ordinary charity, he will easily perceive that it is not my intention to recommend that government or those men there described to the world, much less to teach men how to trample upon good men, and that all and and all that is sacred and venerable upon earth, laws, religion, honesty, and whatnot. If I have been a little too punctual in describing these monsters in all their lineaments and colors, I hope mankind will know them, the better to avoid them my treatise being both a satire against them and a true character of them. So some might say, well, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that just because he says that doesn't mean that's not what he was doing. But Burnham makes a pretty good, a pretty good case that um, Machiavelli, when you, when you actually read his writings, um, all his writings, which I haven't done, but maybe I will eventually, that uh, he was actually a Republican. Like he believed that, that a Republic was the, the best form of government. Um, like not an absolute monarchy, for instance, but that he was very, he was, uh, Burnham argues like a, a political scientist, one of the first political scientists who was trying to look at the way things actually work. So what the prince was, was is, is what Burnham argues, essentially a description of the way politics works and not an, not an endorsement necessarily of that politics, but, but with, um, now there might be a kind of a, a little bit of a little bit of autism there. I don't know, but in, in the sense of, oh well, here's the things that work. So so do that. But um, I, maybe I, I'd from from reading Burnham, I'm not even sure I'd go that far. I think, uh, but I'll, I'll reserve judgment until I actually read more Machiavelli myself. But what do I want to say about that? So for instance, Burnham responds to the charge that uh, that Machiavelli himself has a, a dim view of human nature. 
you know that human nature that humans are these uh these lowly kind of like thieving um like betraying um like people and that's just the way the world is but uh burnham says burnham argues that actually like machiavelli in his writings doesn't actually have a view of human nature he is in the same way that adam smith was describing economic man as as a description of man in one capacity in a certain situation which is in in smith's case economics that that uh, Machiavelli is describing political man. Now, naturally, if you if you have an idea of what politics is, it's not going to be a pretty picture. So, what do you expect him to write? Um, that's the the defense, at least. Now, um, I'll, I want to read one other one other quote from Burnham on Machiavelli. Um, so, this is in the the last chapter in the section on Machiavelli here, because this book covers. Um, several political theorists like Machiavelli, uh, Machiavelli, uh, Mosca, Sorels, and uh, Perito. So he writes in, in this last chapter on, the, uh, on Machiavelli's reputation, he points out, um, what do I want to read here? Okay. In any case, whatever may be the desires of most men, it is most certainly against the interests of the powerful that the, that the truth should be known about political behavior. If the political truths stated or approximated by Machiavelli were widely known by men, the success of tyranny and all other forms of oppressive political rule would become much less likely. A deeper freedom would be possible in society than Machiavelli himself believed attainable. If men generally understood as much of the mechanism of rule and privilege as Machiavelli understood, they would no longer be deceived into accepting that rule and privilege, and they would know what steps to take to overcome them. Therefore, the powerful and their spokesmen, all the official thinkers, the lawyers and philosophers and preachers and demagogues and moralists and editors, must defame Machiavelli. Machiavelli mm -hmm. says that rulers lie and break faith. This proves, they say, that he libels human nature. Machiavelli says that ambitious men struggle for power. He is apologizing for the opposition, the enemy, and trying to confuse you about us, who wish to lead you for your own good and welfare. Machiavelli says that you must keep strict watch over officials and subordinate them to the law. He is encouraging subversion and the loss of national unity. Machiavelli says that no man with power is to be trusted. You see that his aim is to smash all your faith and ideals. Small wonder that the powerful, in public, denounce Machiavelli. The powerful have long practice and much skill in sizing up their opponents. They can recognize an enemy who will never compromise, even with when that enemy is so abstract as a body of ideas. So, um, yeah, so I, I want to get into a bit more Machiavelli because when you look, when you read the, I've only read excerpts from the Prince, but when you read them out of context or um, as I have, that's the impression you get that that Machiavelli essentially had this schizoidal worldview that um, that uh, human nature is is so bad that you need a, a strong power in order to control them. But he's really only talking about a subset of of people in society. Well, well the, and and the he, political and class. He, yeah, and his views are actually more nuanced than that because he 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 does he does say something like that. He does have those statements about what humans are like. But then he also has other statements where he says that, oh, well, you know, some, like a lot of humans are like this. Well, here, here are some, here are some human flaws, but he also makes, he does, he doesn't limit his view of human nature. If he, if he even expresses one to that, he, he, he does talk about the good and the bad in humans and that the bad 
just tend to be the, the features that are most often that you see more often in in politics. I think he might. I think he says that or something to that degree. That that as bad as human nature can be, mm-hmm. you find the worst of it in the princes in in politics. Mm-hmm. And um, and Burnham says that unlike Dante, well, he's got a great a great comparison between Dante, who um, who wrote a book called De, Mon- De Monarchia. Um, and and Machiavelli, well, we'll save that for another show. But um, but he points out that that Machiavelli's political aim was the unification of Italy at this time. And so he was he was actually a historian, um, like a, a a fairly good historian for what he could do at the time, um, um, like reading the classics and and trying to look at the classics and look at recent history and to to figure out the the like political laws like oh when this happens this happens or oh oh it, so one conclusion might be that uh, a leader needs um needs the support of its own po- of his own population in warfare for instance that you can't hire mercenaries and you can't hire foreign armies because they won't have loyalty and like you you need the loyalty of your actual citizens and so then he gives examples so he's kind of looking for what works and what doesn't work so with his political goal in mind, it's the unification of Italy. He says, well, this is what's going to work. I'm a Republican, but it looks like we might need a, a monarch in order to unify Italy. And that, that like that, so that was his, his, uh, like his policy recommendation in, in like kind of a realist school. Well, I, you know, I prefer this form of government, but I don't think it's going to work in this case for this, polit- for this goal. Um, so in that sense, he, well, it's pragmatic and real, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you do? You have any thoughts, guys? Luke, are you going to be? Yeah, a com- I mean, are you going to um, become a Machiavellian now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's 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 go all out here <laughs> <laughs> to achieve our goal. No, um, I, I was just thinking um, about you know what we talked about earlier with uh, this kind of um, schizoidal thinking or left hemisphere thinking and. Um, I guess I would prefer, or I preferred um, someone like Machiavelli, who at least seems to give a shot at telling telling us how it is, you know, or, or just um, being realistic about what politics is. Um, and, uh, you know, what we, most of us have probably heard about in school and what you usually learn about politi- political theory is like Hobbes and Locke and uh, the, these ideas that, to me, at least, seem um, pretty much on the on the left hemisphere side mm-hmm. of things, right? Because they proclaim, uh, uh, you know, a, a f- totally uh, f- f- fictitious uh, natural state, you know, that never mm-hmm. existed and is just yeah. a figment of the imagination, an abstraction, basically. Uh, and then deduce, you know, like logically from there. Um, you know the how a society should be which um, or justifies the society that we're living in and it's uh, I mean it had has been widely criticized this kind of approach and, and rightfully so um, mm-hmm. because it's it seems to me like one of these instances where where abstract thinking just goes wrong where you just take some random facts and then create a huge abstraction you know, from it, like the, the, the social, the societal contract, you know, and, and things like mm-hmm. that, that just, you know, everyone who just, um, as Collingwood recommends, you know, go, goes back to actual experience, you know, will, will 
you know, think, I mean, what, what contract, you know, what, what, what is this nonsense? You know, I mean, people, um, that's not our experience, how society works. Right. And, and it's all this theoretical stuff. And so in that regard, I find it interesting what you mentioned about Machiavelli. I just heard bits and pieces about him uh, here and there too. So I have not, never read um, his work except for maybe a few excerpts, but uh, it strikes me as interesting to, to see, I mean, to ask yourself, why was he so demonized when he actually was at least trying yes. to, to, to give us like an unfiltered uh, account of, of the, of the real madness that is going on in, in politics as opposed to some oh, these weird, you know, abstract theories. Mm -hmm. I, th I think you just said it right there, uh, Lucien. I think it's quite possible that he was um, so insightful uh, and um, so unabashed about uh, stating things as they actually work um, that, you know, this, this kind of veneer of, well, why would you want to read about Machiavellianism? Why, why would you want to think in a manipulative uh, manner? Why would you even want to learn how to, uh, as though this was an instruction manual in manipulative thinking, which it doesn't appear to be. Um, and I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I think he was uh, politically persecuted at some point. Um, and, and even kind of uh, excommunicated or or um, or told to to leave uh, the city from which he lived that may be neither here nor there uh, but it would be interesting at some point to look at all of the or at least some of the the great thinkers um, and writings and texts of uh, of the past few hundred years to see who else may be um, mischaracterized and stereotyped? Uh, like Julius Caesar. I that I took the words right out of my mouth. You know, you read about you read about the works of Julius Caesar, even JFK, and they had to you know they had to pull certain political strings uh, and behave you know in a Machiavellian manner. Um, precisely because of the environment and the milieu in which they were in, uh, they couldn't they couldn't come from on high and try and implement uh, good policies without also thinking about how the opposition would be moving against them uh, and what the opposition wanted. Um, so you know the, there might be this kind of idealistic. Uh, you know, fantasy about how politics actually works that is so far from, from the way things really are that, um, that many people have been led to believe and have faith in um, that, uh, that Machiavelli saw through. And, you know, what's another word for it? Real politique. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is how politics really works. So uh, sounds like an interesting book. Well, well who, who was it that said uh, something about people don't like the ideological striptease? Uh, Lobachevsky. That was Lobachevsky? Yeah. Because that's immediately what came to my mind is, uh, Lucien, you were talking about how, uh, you know, he, 
he had this, how Machiavelli had this, you know, way of presenting things that, and you mentioned it as well, Elon, how he had this way of presenting things laid bare as they are without all of the glitz and the glamour. It's, it's like you were reading Harrison, uh, about the accusations again, why would you read Machiavelli? You know, he's just inciting violence against your, your benevolent leaders. Yeah. Well, it's like, it takes that and it strips it of all of its yeah. gloss and all of its glitz and all of its, you know, highfalutin supposed mm -hmm. ideals and lays bare that which is really true about it, yeah. which is ugly yeah. and gross and, <laughs> but real nonetheless. Yeah. yeah he definitely like, uh, Burnham says that he defines politics as the struggle for power. And that's pretty much what he limits it to. It's like politics is the struggle of power. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to be, you're going to be um, deceived by all the appearances on top of that. And so he starts out the book by Burnham starts out the book by quoting the 1932 platform of the democratic party in the United States and all of their ideals and the things they want and how they're going to save money and, and, uh, and eliminate unnecessary government, uh, like divisions and ad administrative, uh, like centers and committees and trim down the government and do all this stuff. And then he, <laughs> so then he says, uh, what is, how does he put it and then um, in reality? Yeah. Then he says, you know, essentially like, okay, we've just read that now. How can we make sense that, that it seems it seems like it was so um like those ideals were so clear such a, a clear policy position how can we explain the fact that they did literally nothing of that sort it's like well it's because that's the nature of that's the nature of politics is that politics isn't about doing things for the the public good or um or or any of the policy positions that 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 po political parties give um if they achieve any of those those might be those might be um like uh how to how to put it like not like unintended yet. effects <laughs> or or it, or or they might be done but it's because they they ha they have to be done in the context of the the pursuit of political power um if they can get away with not doing them then they're going to not do them and if and that's the that's where the the managerial class kind of comes into play is that the well, the feature of the managerial class is that that um that ability with language essentially to lie to be a pr man and that's where you look at the history of public relations and propaganda it's so prevalent everywhere in politics and in, in in mainstream culture and in, in modern culture that that it is this functional psychopathy where it is just it's it's seen as completely normal to just tell bald-faced lies and it's and I think a lot of people probably realize it, but it's kept under the surface. It's not, it's, it's not too frequently acknowledged. Like you won't see Matt Lee or any, or any of like Matt Lee, who you brought up Elon and like all these, a lot of these, um, like good reporters, they know that, but they'll never say it. They'll never say, I know you're just a PR person. I know you're just giving me the line. I know you're lying to me right now. Can we have the real deal? No, they play the game. Like they, they take them at their word like okay, we'll we'll pretend that you're you're being as honest as possible, um, but you're not. You're you're actually just lying, and that's the that's the mentality. That's the corporate mentality. That's the political reality. Is that you tell people what they want to hear? Oh, we've got this internal scandal. Let's draft a statement where we present ourselves in the best 
in the best light possible, even though everyone knows it's just a, like a shitty PR statement that has very little relation to reality. It's just the image we want to present ourselves, um, uh, the image of ourselves that we want to present to the world. And it's, it's just all bullshit. And <laughs> well, um, yeah, there's a, there's a reason for that. Um, I, I wanted to read one, one more little thing, uh, <clears throat> from Burnham on Machiavelli on this sub. Well, I don't know if it's on this subject. Um, there was a quote on where he talks about, you know, politics as the, as the struggle for power and kind of some of the implications of that, but I don't have the quote, uh, quote handy. So I won't read that one, but I, I will read this. Um, Burnham writes, the ruled majority, he's kind of paraphrasing um, Machiavelli's outlook. The ruled majority, changeable, weak, short-sighted, selfish, is not at all for Machiavelli the black to the ruler's white. Indeed, for him, the ruler type is even less constant, less loyal, and on many occasions, less intelligent. And then he's got some... Uh, some quotes. Let me see if this one's okay. I say that this is Machiavelli writing. I say then in behalf of the multitude that when they are charged with all by most authors may be charged that what, uh, what they are charged with all by most authors may be charged upon all private persons in the world and especially upon princes for whoever lies irregularly and is not restrained by the law is subject to the same exorbitancies and will commit as bad faults as the most dissolute multitude in the world. And this may be easily known if it be considered how many princes there have been and how few of them good. He wrote that in Discourses. So his Discourses on Livy, um, <clears throat> which as far as I know is kind of like a better, a better representation of what the, like the, um, what Machiavelli's own thoughts on government should be. You know, so that's where you see a lot of his Republicanism come out, um, um, in kind of as a, a contrast to, to the, like the limits that he places on himself in the Prince. But yeah, I mean, who, who knows? I might, I might be, a, I, be, I might become a Machiavellian, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the sense that, so that you can, we can still use the, the word Machiavellian because Machiavellianism, like you mentioned, Alan, is the word that we use for like a, a feature of kind of like the psychopathic personality in the dark triad, like uh, Machiavellianism, Machiavellianism, uh, narcissism, psychopathy. It's a certain type of like manipulative um, uh, personality type. And that is the personality type that Machiavelli describes. It's not necessarily the one that he proscribes, the one that he recommends, but it's the it's the one that you see in politics. So, so the argument could could be made that Machiavelli was um, like an early, uh, well, he was the the first to to lay bare that personality, that the, the Machiavellian personality. Uh, and perhaps it's just unfortunate that it has his name and people now associate him personally with the, with a Machiavellian personality when he may have just been essentially saying, that's just the way it is. That's what these, that's what these people are like. Mm. So, uh, some, some thoughts, we'll get into that in the future. Do we want to, do we want to wrap it up? Do you have mm -hmm. any final, any final thoughts, Luke, any insights on what we've been talking about? Uh, well, maybe just to uh, reiterate um, the, you know, what I kept thinking, you know, when you talked about 
lying politicians and all of that, you know, one of the tricks that they seem to take advantage of um, is, again, this kind of like hyper-rational deductive kind of thinking where you uh, start with a premise, for example, you know, the our leaders want to figure out the best for us, you know, something like that. And then you um, logically form an argument <laughs> out of that. And um, and in people's mind, that that kind of works, right? So the, if everything that is deduced from this premise, you know, with all that, these kinds of arguments, they kind of make sense. But if you once just stop and, and look at, um, you know, your, your own experience, for example, <laughs> in like organizations or even on a small scale, right? Um, just have this kind of feedback, you know, when, when you hear people, you know, coming up with uh, grand theories and 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 uh, justifications and all of that, just think about the experience uh, on the ground, even in your own life, um, even if you don't work for governments, or, but everyone, I guess, has experience with organizations. So um, I think that's a good, good way of um, kind of grounding our experience and filtering out and catching at least uh, some of those um, preposterous lies about how the world actually works. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's all. I think that's a good note to, to end it on. Um, we'll be back. I, like I said, I want to talk about this book some more, so maybe I'll get you guys to read it with me because it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm particularly interested in in getting to um, the modern Machiavellians. So the guys I mentioned, Mosca, Sorrells, uh, uh, Pareto, Pareto, um, more modern, like they were all around the time of the First World War when they did their writings. And so I'll be interested to see what they have to say too. And yeah, we'll be talking about more, more, uh, more ponderology. Maybe we'll be talking about some schizoids some more in the future because there's a lot more to say, but uh, with that we'll leave it there and make sure if you enjoyed this conversation to hit the subscribe button, hit a If there's a like button, how do these things work? Is there a like <laughs> button? Hit the like button and uh, hit that notification button too. If you want to be notified that we're back next week we enjoy having readers listeners viewers so uh leave a comment too uh we like comments most of the time sometimes we even reply to them so enjoy thank you take care we'll see you next week bye-bye everyone